Amen. Go and have a seat, church. Uh, welcome to NBC. For joining us online, we welcome you as well. Uh, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 16, or we will get there eventually. We're going to bounce around in the Proverbs a little bit first. Uh, we're in a series called Good Work, Honoring God or Glorifying God Every Day. And we talked last week about how one of the blessings of work is that God gives us this opportunity, and it was his design from before the fall, for us to uh, be able to participate in what he's doing in this world. So Adam, before there's even an Eve, before there's a fall, Adam is placed into the garden to work and keep it, and it allows us then to, God invites us to participate in his provision. So what changes at the fall is not that, okay, well, we were supposed to be on vacation our whole lives, and now we're supposed to work. The difference is that now, instead of us being able to go pick fruit off the tree, the tree is going to need to be tended and watched and watered. And we, we jokingly said every rose now has its thorn. Um, so we do have that. Just like childbirth was always a plan, part of the plan, the difference is now there's pain involved in it. But that doesn't change the overall mandate from God with regards to work for us to participate in what he's doing. So when a person won't work, refuses to work or whatever, it's more than just, okay, they're not making their contribution to society. There's something... Uh, where a person is actually kind of rejecting their, their calling, what it means to be a human being here in this world. Uh, and so I want us to, to take the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about work ethics today, work ethic next week, uh, and then we'll talk about kind of rhythm and, and balancing all that stuff out. But I encourage you to go back, and if you didn't hear the sermon last Sunday, it's a good foundation for what we're talking about uh, today. The legendary basketball coach John Wooden said... Character is who you are when no one's watching. Now that is a great, ex I think, a great definition of what character is because it doesn't take a lot for us to try to impress people in public. It doesn't take a lot for us to be honest when we know if we told a lie, it would be exposed right away. Uh, it doesn't take a lot to work hard when somebody's coming, the boss is walking by your desk, right? Uh, you just close the solitaire window and off you go, right? Um, we're all familiar with the, the, the links to which we go in public or under watchful eye to change the way that we behave. Um, and I think that Wooden's quote there, when what he tried to coach into his players was, look, you, you be a person that carries the way that you act on this basketball court with you when you're not on the basketball court. And there are two men. Now, he was a Christian, and, and uh, there was something of Jesus in what, uh, what he taught his players, which was you're supposed to be the same person on and off the court. You're supposed to be the same person whether uh, your boss is watching you or not, or whether you think you're ever going to get found out or not. That it isn't about trying to do things in such a way, angling a little here, a little there, uh, to try and get to the top, but that ultimately God will honor the honest. And that's the point I want us to get today. God honors the honest. Many years ago, I spoke with a wife. It was right after I'd preached a sermon on work, actually, and we were talking about being honest, hardworking people. Uh, she comes running up to me, and she was the wife of a very, very successful businessman who, who ran a, a, a large hotel chain, and they did a lot of hiring as a result. Now, this was a luxury hotel chain, so they needed really good customer service, and she came up and almost ran, and so she was 70 years old or so, so it was kind of interesting to see, uh, big, big auditorium, and amen, and then here she comes, like, like a beeline, and so usually when that happens somebody's about to be critical. <laughs> so I kind of have my guard up. And she goes, she goes, Tim. She puts her hand right here on my forearm. She goes, 
Oh my goodness. Can I just tell you how much trouble we have hiring people? She goes, the people that work hard often are not honest. A lot of the honest people don't work very hard. But if you find honest and hardworking people, boy, we try to hang on to those. And in a subsequent conversation with her husband, he said, my experience is if you bat 500 on hiring, you're way above average. Meaning when, you, when you're hiring people, and those of you who are bosses or hire people, you have employees that you, you participate in the interview process, uh, might say that. Yes, finding honest, hardworking people is hard. And they do go together. Part of your work ethics is your work ethic because... You take the job and you're saying to your boss, hey, during the hours that you've hired me, I'm going to give you the best I've got for that window of time. So that piece right there is, uh, is something I think that we often think, well, I work hard. and I, They're supposed to go together, and they do go together in the eyes of God. So honest and hardworking. Honest and hardworking. What about talent? That's kind of frosting on the cake. If I were to take a survey of the people, even in this church, that are employers of some kind and said, all right, would you rather have an insanely talented but slightly dishonest and lazy worker, or I will give you a moderately talented person of integrity who works extremely hard, which would you hire? 100% of them would take the latter. They wouldn't, they wouldn't need any time to think it over. They would say, no. There is a certain point at which, okay, if a person, you know, literally can't walk from here to there or something like that, maybe, maybe there's something. It's like, okay, I'm not going to hire either of them. I'm going to keep, keep looking. But, but, but there's a, a definite desire among employers to get that. Now, this, by the way, if you are a boss, I'm not talking just to people who aren't bosses. I'm especially talking to you because you are the one who sets the culture for the people around you. And if you are unethical and if you are lazy, then don't be surprised if you end up with unethical and lazy workers. Apples don't fall far from the tree in the workplace. You are the tone setter. You are the culture setter. You are the role model. So if you look around you, and that's what you have around you, the best place to start is the mirror. Now, here we go. Back to this, the practical side. All that. Just, boy, it would be great to have honest, hardworking people. The biblical side is that God requires ethics from his people regardless of where they go. And that he says in his word that he will honor the honest. Proverbs 28, 20, this is just one example. A faithful person will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. So whenever God talks about success in business, and this is something, if you really want a fascinating study of this, look at, read the book of Kings. And I say book because they were originally one book, but there's first and second Kings. Read the stories of the king. The way that this goes down usually is they are judged not by how much property they amassed or uh, what their leadership acumen was. They are judged by how obedient they were to God. So right out of the chute, it will say, next, so-and-so came to reign, the son of so-and-so. And it will either say they did more evil than anybody before them, or it will say they did what was good and right in their own eyes, or they will say they honored the Lord and God prospered them, et cetera, et cetera. That, that is the way that this goes in the Bible. God sees himself as the one who builds and ruins careers. And people who follow and, and do their work honestly and in a very ethical way, God blesses them and honors them. And people who don't, well, it doesn't go as well over time. 
I'm going to give you eight Proverbs in a row. I wish I could unpack each of them. I had the time to. Feel free to write them down in your notes. Uh, you're going to hear the phrase as we go dishonest uh, scales or diverse weights and diverse measures. So as we read them, I'm going to preface these by explaining what that means. Biblically speaking, what you would have is people would go to the market and uh, they would weigh grain and stuff like that. People would exchange, buy and exchange. So you would go and they would weigh it. And okay, you gave me two and a half pounds of this and uh, so I give you X. Well, you had people that, that would rig the scales in such a way that they would dishonestly, it would weigh things. So picture uh, you go to the gas pump and uh, you realize that um, there's, a, a, there's a price posted and the idea is I pump that much gas, you get paid that much money. But imagine that somebody had their finger on the scale and you thought, for instance, it says on the, the uh, pump that you got 14 gallons of gas, but in reality you got 10. Okay, well, you'd be outraged, you'd be frustrated, right? Well, there were people particularly in that culture, the people that were a little higher up on the food chain, they would rig that stuff and take advantage of poor people who weren't as sophisticated and were the ones that would often be the farmers. So they weren't the merchants that were buying stuff and shipping them. They were the ones that were producing it, hauling it down to market, and they would take advantage of them. God finds that despicable. So that's what, when you hear diverse weights or weights and scales, that's what's going on, okay? Here we go, Proverbs 20, verse 10. Diverse weights and diverse measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 11.1, 1. dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. 16.11, honest weights and scales are the Lord's, all the weights in the bag are his work. 15.27, he who is greedy for gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. 17.23, a wicked man accepts a bribe behind the back to pervert the ways of justice. See, they even bribed people back then. 2014, it is good for nothing, cries the buyer, but when he's gone his way, then he boasts. Let me pause on that one real quick. Do you, do you hear what he's saying there? Oh, man, I got to, you know, uh, this, this whole thing that you sold me, it's just, you know, it's not worth anything. And then as soon as he leaves, he's like, man, I got the best deal. He's not, he's dishonest in the marketplace. This is one of my favorites, 20, verse 17. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. <laughs> Proverbs 13, 11, Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. So the overall message here is God works against those who are deceitful and he honors the honest. Now, I suppose there are a few that, you know, probably feel like bending a rule here or there, charging a little more than they should have, reporting a little less income to the IRS. It's not the biggest deal in God's eyes, but if you really survey Scripture and see some of the things that God seems to point out to people along the way, they're fairly small by our standards. That God doesn't use kind of some funky ruler like we do to measure deceit. To where like as long as it doesn't go above this certain threshold, then it's really not deceitful. That there's an honesty, an integrity, a wholeness to the person that 
we're supposed to carry with us into the workplace, and that covers everything from the job we do to how much we charge uh, to the way we speak about people, the way the stories we tell in the workplace, all of those things are under the watchful eye of God. And he's saying, I will bless you if you are honest. But if you're going to be deceitful, ultimately you will come to ruin. And I know that there are people, and we hear this in the culture, that the end will justify the means on some things, that it's okay to do something slightly unethical so that a greater good can be accomplished. It might even be considered by some to be more ethical. The problem is that God's measuring stick for ethics doesn't work that way. It's like we, like the diverse measures and scales thing. We, if I'm measuring your ethics, you get one set of scales, and if I'm measuring mine, and then we get a different set of scales. Or, hey, there's a really good end out there, so I'm going to swap that scale out for this scale. Because then I can make it all work out ethically in my mind, and I can sleep at night. Because to me, to do something slightly sketchy in order to either, A, avoid a, a, a worse outcome, or to do something that is for my family, you know, and those kind of things... That, that, that's okay, because I just did it for this. So if I rob this, if I steal this, if I shave this, if I, you know, these little things, then that's okay. Um, and we'll get to this in a second. But what the Bible says is, no, it's in the small things. That's really how you tell how ethical a person is. It's not the big things. How many times have you heard somebody say, it's not like I killed a guy? Well, I, I hope not. But, I mean, is that really the bar we're setting Oh, okay, well, you must be a great person then. I mean, that, that's kind of how we do it. It's not like I killed anybody. All I did was rob a liquor store. <laughs> All I did was, you know, cheat on the exam. Students, by the way, oh, let me go to that for a second. Uh, I'm a college professor, and I watch kids sleep through the entire class. And when I point out to them that they slept through the entire class, no kidding, I have had students tell me I was praying. Do you know what a dumb thing that is to say to a guy like me? It's like, dude, you know how many people I watch sleep when I'm talking in life? I got sermon people. I got classroom people. I know when a person's praying and when they're not praying. I've never seen a person. In fact, I've never prayed for two solid hours. You're amazing. I mean... Really amazing, you know. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I just go, don't, don't, don't lie to me. Don't, you don't need to cheat on the test because well, if I don't, then I'm going to get an F and then I can't go to the school I want. That's why, right, when you cheat, here's what happens. God sees it. That's number one. Number two, you start the practice of cheating in life. And when you get to work later in life, all of a sudden the stakes get bigger. You may get busted for cheating on a test. You may take the F in that or whatever. Your parents find out. Okay, and then you get busted for stealing from your boss and you go to jail. Okay, you become a person of dishonesty. You develop habits when you're young. There's no such thing as situation ethics, as it used to be called, where, you know, well, in this situation, this is the ethical thing to do, and this, you know, but over here, this might be the ethical thing to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm aware that there are really tricky situations out there. And so what you do is you make the judgment with humility and, and understanding that this is a really tough one. I don't exactly know what the right thing to do is, but my best guess based on what I think God would want us to do is this. But the frame isn't what end do I want to see achieved unless the end is God's will. 
The, the aim has to be the pleasing of God. That's the Christian's aim at all times. The ethics of the workplace should be shaped by the cross. What does that mean? Well, it means you're willing to obey God even if doing so is costly. I had one of my deacons, this is years and years and years ago, in a land far, far away. Uh, he came and saw me after a sermon. It had been a couple of weeks since the ser- I had preached the sermon. He said he'd already visited one of the elders, and he wanted to come talk to me about his job situation. I said, sure, come on in. He comes and he sits down, young dad, two little floppy-haired boys, uh, and, and really great guy, great sense of humor, very magnetic personality, kind of guy you'd want to be around and have as a friend. Uh, and so he sits down and he tells me that he's got a job, very well-paying job, but he lied on his resume. He never got the degree he claimed he got. He came up a couple classes short. Uh, and so he's two classes shy. And he says, you know, I feel like now whatever money I earn, I'm stealing because I shouldn't be in the job or he at least should have had the chance to hire me knowing what my actual resume was. What should I do? And so like a 25-year-old preacher would do, I said, what do you think you should do? Because I had no idea what he should do at the time. <laughs> and he said, I go, I go, you said you talked to so-and-so, one of our elders. What did he say? He says he thought I should tell my boss. I said, what do you think you should do? I think I should tell my boss. Said, well, why are you asking me? <laughs> Sounds like you have your answer. So he goes in. I said, I would, I would let your wife know you're going to do this, first of all. And I would think through carefully the timing of it to where you get the most, uh, you know, the timing I don't mean wait six months. I mean, uh, if you know the guy is a, a loss afternoon, do it in the morning kind of thing if you can, so that he's in good shape to hear it. So he goes in, he tells his boss, he gets fired for it. He comes in to see me. He let me go. How do you feel? I feel great. I'm like, I'm sorry? He says, I feel great. I said, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going into business for myself. <laughs> and so he does, and he, he became extremely successful at it. Uh, but his catching me off guard, because I assumed he's going to feel terrible. Because losing a job feels terrible. And it does. Unless you've been carrying a sack of deceit with you since the day you started working there, and now you've let it go. Right? I don't know why we think we do ourselves favors by covering up and hiding and doing things like that. Uh, Marilee Jones applied for an entry-level admissions office job at MIT in 1979. Marilee was very sharp. People liked her a lot. And so she rose up through the ranks to where she eventually became the director of admissions at MIT. Yes, that MIT. 2007, they get a tip that she'd never graduated college, like she said she did. So Mary Lee ends up resigning. In her resignation statement, after 28 years at MIT, she says this. I misrepresented my academic degrees when I first applied to MIT 28 years ago and did not have the courage to correct my resume when I applied for my current job or at any other time since. We now know many people 
like a third, lie about their race to gain admissions to elite colleges or get better financial aid packages. I'll tell you a parable. The dishonest mechanic. There was a man, his name, we'll call him Tom. Tom and his wife, Spimily, had a car and they were having trouble with it. So they took it to a dealership where they often had their service done. The mechanic looked inside. He gave a long list of things that needed to be fixed with a total bill of $4,000 plus. Tom, not being a moron, decided to take his car to another mechanic where he had been before. The mechanic there looks inside, notices that whenever the oil change had been done last, there was a particular piece or air filter or something like that. I don't, Tom did not remember when that happened, and so he, he just takes the thing, plunks it back in, charges nothing, and sends us on our way. Never had a problem with it since? Wow. Dishonesty. Now, let me ask you, in, 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 if Jesus were telling the parable, he would say, who is likely to get the family's future business, rhetorically? God honors the honest, and so do people generally. Most people, especially in the world we're living in, a distrustful society in which the distrust has been well earned, almost across the board. You want to shine like a star in your workplace? Work hard and be honest. The talent will come, and in fact, they will dump resources into you to train you to be stronger and better and smarter. They will send you to every daggum seminar on the planet. You can teach people to do the job better, but teaching them to be honest is hard. That's just, that's just one of those things. It can be done. The Holy Spirit can transform people. I've seen it happen over and over and over again by the thousands. But boy... That is just hard. It does seem like there are some people who are just programmed a little bit, you know, the, 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 the gas gauge is just broken. You don't know if what they're ever telling you is really the deal. Well, where do we start? If we want the Holy Spirit to transform us into honest people or keep continuing to give us the integrity to, to act the way that we ought, Jesus would say this, start with the small things. Start with the small things. Luke 16, 10, and 11. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Now, what he's saying is, if you want God to trust you with more, you're going to need to be faithful with little. And that little hardwiring, the little. Uh, last summer, we did a series on Joseph. Joseph, to me, is the greatest biblical living example of this principle. Joseph's life starts off terribly. Uh, he gets basically sold into slavery by his brothers, even though he, his dad loves him. And his life is a a virtual shoots and ladders in Scripture. He goes up the chain, then down the chain, up the chain, down the chain, up the chain, down the chain. But all along, 
What he stands out for is, A, he's a good dream interpreter. We know that. But because God is with him, and the why God is with him is he's honest. He's honest. And so his bosses, wherever he goes, it doesn't matter if he's in prison, the prisoners love him. The prison guards love him. And eventually, Pharaoh loves him to where he continues to rise up through the ranks to Pharaoh's right-hand guy. Let me, let, me, let me put a caveat in here and say, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to get better at your job, you know, skill-wise and all that. That's all good. But nothing will make you a better worker in the eyes of God and likely your employer like being honest and hardworking in what you do. John Maxwell, leadership guru, he says, if you just apply the golden rule to your workplace, you'll be shocked at what that does for you. I mean, think about what that would look like. If you treated your boss that way, if you treated your employees that way, if you really tried to love others, treat other people the way you'd want to be treated in the workplace, how would that go? Would you want to be lied to? No. Would you want to work with lazy people? No. Would you... If you had an employee, would you want them to do their job well? Yes. If you had, yes, 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 then, then, then go do those things. Now, a uh, little caveat here in terms of telling the truth. Again, it's important to know ethical workers don't kind of tell the truth. You can lie through omission. There's a bunch of ways to tell lies. You can do it through exaggeration. Uh, you can do it by uh, leaving out the fact that you were there at the same thing that got everybody else in trouble, for instance. Or What time did, uh, did Bill come in? Uh, he came in at 10. You came in at 11, but he didn't ask what time you came in. You just tell him about Bill, keep moving on, you know. Ethical workers don't tell a lie so that something good will happen. They tell the truth, come what may, understanding that the end doesn't justify the means, but honest means lead you to the best end. Because they trust God with the ends. Remember from last week that our vocation, our lives really should be viewed as this manifestation of God's work in the world. We're partnering with God to do what, what he put us on this earth to do. But that means then that a lack of ethics is not just doing harmless things to better our career. It's a rebellion against our calling. First to holiness and then to our vocations. And it potentially diminishes our witness to Jesus. After all, how are people going to come to trust an altogether honest God when they can't trust his followers? Bless you. I'm going to give you uh, five everyday dishonesties. Yeah, these are ways that I've observed that people do this over the years, and um, these are just little things that, you know, if you're doing some of these, they're little ways to tune up a little bit, okay? Uh, number one, shaving hours. Um, years ago, I had an intern, and I really want interns to have a good experience. I don't, if they're working with me, I want to, I had bad internships <laughs> where it was like the I never saw the person I was supposed to be mentored by for the whole summer kind of thing. And so I, I really don't want that to be their experience. But that particular summer, right as, as this guy came on board, uh, there was a crisis in the church, and, I, and he, I got no time with the kid most of the summer. But he was supposed to be in from 8 to 5, Sunday through Thursday, okay? 
He was getting paid less than nothing. I mean, horrible pay. That's, that's church internship work for the most part. And uh, so throughout the time there, I would, from wherever I was, I would ask the, I would call in at random and ask the secretary, hey, can I talk to so-and-so? Knowing that if they were not there, I could tell, okay? And I would do that three or four times a week. There were a couple of times where I would get there at the end of the day because I'd been out doing ministry somewhere else for some reason, and I would come in at 4.30 fully expecting not to see that guy there. He had a desk in the hallway at the church. It was a terrible spot. There were no windows where he was. Like, if there was a more soul-crushing place to spend your summer, I don't know what it would have been. The kid did not move from 8 to 5. I mean, not 457. Five or later, before 8 or at 8, he was there every stinking day. Unbelievable for a college kid. Are you kidding me? And he, waking up at the crack of noon is tough for a lot of college kids. <laughs> this guy's like there at 8, sitting in his chair, reading books, finding ways to keep himself busy, right? And it would not surprise you to know that the guy is, up, uh, is, is in ministry now, uh, when, was a youth pastor, and they, when the preacher left where they were, they go, we like you, you need to be the senior guy. So they put him in as a senior at a very young age, and he's handled it great because he's a man of integrity. And you could see it when he was younger. It was who he was. Shaving hours. If you're a trucker, the logbook read accurately. Uh, if you're a mailman, mail person, mail carrier, whatever they go by now, same thing. Um, if you're a preacher, you putting in your prep hours the way you should. If you're, you know, youth pastor, did you really do the best you could to get together with all the kids that you needed to, or do these other things that you needed to do to make the the weekly experience the way it could have been if you're a teacher. When you called in sick for the 40th time, were you really sick? Or did you just, could you have told the principal, you know what, I'm just going to take a day because I'm fried. I just need a day. And I know you don't have to tell them. Okay. But God sees it, you know. right? If you're a student, are you really getting done what you need to get done in the classroom? Are you, are, you, are you cheating? Getting your boyfriend or girlfriend to do your homework for you? Those kind of things. Right? They're all a part of, of the shaving hours principle. Um, and again, on shaving hours, just remember that work ethic is a part of your ethics. Number two, blame shifting. Uh, I have met some people who have never done a thing wrong in their entire career, according to them. Uh, they have, they've never been late. They've never made a mistake. Uh, nothing's ever been their fault. Not once. Boy, hire those people because they're perfect. So, uh, yeah. No, don't because they're lying. So, blame shifting. Their fault, their fault, not my fault. Somebody else's fault. Culture's fault. You know, thanks Putin for whatever the problem was. You know, that kind of stuff. You just have to at some point say, would you please take responsibility for one thing? You were the only one in the building. How? 
Is it possible that it wasn't your fault? You know, uh, I mean, you know, whatever it is. Um, add to that one, lying about shortcomings, okay? Uh, I have an interview question. I've asked this for the last 20 years or so. I will say to an interview candidate for a ministry position, six months from now, I'm at a party. Somebody I don't know comes up to me and they say, hey, I hear you hired so-and-so. Did you know that they, what are they going to tell me? And are they going to tell me anything that would make me regret hiring you? I've had one guy in all those years say, well, let me tell you something. This happened. And it was bad. It wasn't very good. Uh, it was serious. But he had dealt with it uh, in a Christ-like way. He'd repented of it. He confessed it. it. He'd had some distance from it, so it wasn't like it happened the week before. And there was a track record of, of repentance there. So I hired him, and we worked together for many, many years, and he's still in ministry. And I trusted him more because he told me. Not less. More. The people that I, I have a harder time trusting are the people who almost finished the sentence for me. Is there anything that they would tell me that would keep me from hiring you? No, absolutely not. It's like, why don't you think about it first? <laughs> think carefully. Because if they do, I am going to fire you. I just need to let you know. If you didn't tell me, and they tell me, okay, because the church deserves to note that the people that are here, they're not perfect, but they're, they're honest people. Okay? So, so, you know, think it over first. And if there's nothing, that's great. That's possible. <laughs> Likely, I hope. But uh, not owning up to shortcomings. Yeah, you know what? I did. I lost my temper with him or something, right? So I said, oh, I didn't yell at them. I, you know, I, I, why don't you just say... You know what? I lost my temper. I shouldn't have. I owe you an apology. Will you forgive me? Uh, and this carries over, by the way, to the house. Um, hey, you know, why did you tell me you had your homework done when you clearly didn't have your homework done? Oh, I thought I did, but I forgot. I had the assignment. Oh. Okay. Why not just say, because I really wanted to go out with my friends. So I lied. Okay? I trust that kid more, not less, more, than, than the mealy-mouthed kid that is a, a, an adolescent excuse factory to just say, you know what? We were already in bed, and you were supposed to be home at midnight. Uh, the app says you got home at 2. What happened there? Oh, I, you know what? I must have left my phone in somebody's car, and they must have driven by the house at 2, because I have no idea. Or my personal favorite, you're spying on me? No. No, that's the deal. If we go to bed and you're out, you have that app on, so at any point I want, I can look and I can see where you are. That's the deal. If not, keep your rear end in the house. That's the deal. I'm not spying on you. It's called parenting. All right? The question is, why did you lie, not, or why did you miss curfew? Right? 
So parents train your kids to be honest, but that's easier to do when you're honest. When you're honest. Boy, if they know that they got a sketchy mom or dad, and then you come to them and lecture and pontificate about honesty, that's a problem. Teachers, if you tank in class and your principal goes, did you prepare properly? And go, oh, you know, I just, you know, these kids are so, just say, no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't prepare properly, but I will tomorrow. You have my word. That's how you start building a, a workplace and a life of integrity. Because feeling that little piece of pain that the confession brings, it brings liberation too, but there's some pain for sure. And sometimes you get disciplined for doing the wrong thing, is part of what shapes you into an honest person. You don't like how that feels. It's, it's God's way of helping shape our souls. The one who the Lord loves, he disciplines. It's not, that, it's not too different from, from even what goes on in a workplace or, or a classroom. You know, um, quick story. I remember um, there was a teacher, and I'd kind of been a headache for him all semester. I was debating him all semester because um, I didn't like kind of where he was coming from. And so I would go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I remember being in the library, and my buddy coming up to me and saying, hey, let's go. It was during finals. And I said, where? He goes, to the final. What final? Church history final. I go, that's tomorrow. He's like, no, it's right now. So I scramble through a look. Sure enough, I got it wrong. I hadn't studied at all. And this was the kind of class that you will get smoked if you don't study for this class. It's dates and church fathers and, you know, like you got no chance. And I'm like, this dude is going to smoke me. And I'm walking out of here just shelled. So what I do is I walk with my tail between my legs over to the professor and I go, Dr. Hughes, world-renowned church historian. And I said, I got the day of the final wrong. I haven't studied at all. If you need me to take it now, I will. But I'm telling you already, I'm going to fail the exam. I'd like to ask if I could take it tomorrow. And he says, sure. And then he told me, someday, you may be a professor. <laughs> and if a student comes to you, and says that, remember this moment, right? Now, I could have gone, ah. Oh. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, I said, COVID, man. I got COVID, you know, in <laughs> 1995 or whatever. It's like, yeah, you know, whatever the excuse may be, right? But my parents raised me in a house. It was like, you just don't, you just don't lie. Lying is almost worse than whatever you did. Just don't lie about it. And I've tried to, uh, the best of my ability, build that in our house as well, imperfectly though it may be. Uh, not saying the last 10%. Is that all? Yeah, that's it. That's all that happened. Okay. How do you really feel about working here? Oh, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> you know. No, tell me. How do you... Do you do you feel like I'm too... No. No. You know, it's like, you know, 
Not, not actually going the distance because the part, the, the, the dishonesty part hides in the last 10%. It's the part you don't want to add. That's often where the dishonesty hangs out. It's like mold in the conversation. You just have to, you have to be willing to say, yeah, actually, it did make me, it made me feel small when you said that to me. Instead of saying, oh, no big deal. It didn't bother me at all. What if you said, thanks for saying that. And I accept your apology. You know, at the time, it made me feel really small. Um, and I think, you know, I've said things to people over the years that have done the same thing. And I'd like to, you know, I've always, I didn't like that that happened. So I really honor the fact that you'd say that. So thanks. Apology accepted. Let's move on. Right? But say the last 10% as you're doing it. Um, then here's the bonus round as we around. How you talk about your coworkers and people you disagree with. This is the plague of society right now. The way we characterize opponents that we have disagreement with or people that we want to throw mud on. We make them out to be dragons, worse, just completely amoral monsters without accurately representing their perspective, without accurately representing what they're actually trying to say. And we know what they're trying to say, but if... But that sounds reasonable, and we need them to sound unreasonable. And so I take what they're saying, and I spin it, and I, and I turn it into an animated form of what they said and, and throw it out and, you know, it, to make them look stupid. Even though they never said that, they didn't mean that. I know they didn't mean that, and I know they didn't say that. And that's not going to keep me from spinning it to make myself look better than my employees, my fellow employees. Or There's a movie called In the Heart of the Sea. It's based on the same story that Moby Dick comes from. 2015, Ron Howard directs this movie, New England Whaling Ship, gets sunk by a colossal white whale in 1820, based on a true story. So it inspires Herman Melville to write Moby Dick, but because this voyage to acquire whale oil is a total failure, there's a council convened afterwards to figure out, okay, you came back with no oil, what happened? Because we just spent a ton of money to send you guys out on that expedition. I'm going to recite to you a dialogue. I'm not going to do it in dramatic fashion. I'm just going to read it to you. Um, between Pollard and Chase. Chase is the first mate. Pollard is the captain. All right? So they're, they're preparing to address the council soon, and they're trying to get their heads together. So Pollard, the captain, goes, if the insurance houses and investors were to start worrying about sea monsters sinking ships, sailors uh, drawing lots to survive. I mean, we're in the oil business, all of us. And as in any business, the, the probability of success must always be greater than the risk incurred. So what are you suggesting, George? That you say the ship ran aground. Well, that's a lie. And say that the men that died drowned. That's another lie. Think on it. They will make you captain. Well, that pledge I already have in writing, only on the condition, though, that you bring home a ship full of oil. This way, it's really guaranteed. You could be a wealthy name. The name Chase need no longer be a landsman's name, but an established name that belongs among the great families of Nantucket. So you want me to whitewash what happened for profit? We're asking you to be pragmatic. So he pauses. Chase is played by Chris Hemsworth in the movie. He says, the Essex was sunk by a white whale. 
And those of us that survived in ill-equipped whale boats had to, and had to commit abominations in order to survive. And on our return, we're expected to spread barefaced lies so that you, the ship owners of, of Nantucket, might line your pockets and sleep well at night. Well, I will not embroider the truth, nor should you, George. And then he turns around and he walks out. That's the problem, embroidering the truth. I love that phrase. Well, not embroider the truth. Because Jesus says the truth will be revealed. Luke 12, 2 to 3. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. That's a terrifying passage. <laughs> Scripture. <laughs> that is Horrifying, in fact. But it's one that's in the Bible just as sure as John 3.16 is. It's a teaching of Jesus that we would do well to remember. Like Tanner Munsey, t-ball player extraordinaire. Uh, he's in Wellington, Florida. He's playing second base in his t-ball game. Sports Illustrated covered this story. Ground ball to him. There's a runner going from first to second. He reaches out to tag the runner. Umpire calls the runner out. Tanner goes over to the umpire and says, man, I, I, didn't, I didn't get him. I didn't tag him. She looks at him like he's from a different planet and then says, okay, safe. <laughs> calls him safe. His coach, of course, is going, what's the matter with you, kid? Like, don't you understand? Just go with whatever the umpire says. Okay, coach, you know, I guess. And he goes back next, two weeks later, playing same league, same town, has the same umpire. He's playing shortstop this time. Ground ball to Tanner. Runner's going this time from second to third. Reaches out to tag the runner. Umpire calls the runner safe. Little Tanner takes the ball, chucks it back to the pitcher, and is dragging around. Like that, umpire asks him, what, what's wrong? And says, I tagged the runner. The umpire goes, out. Calls the runner out even after the play <laughs> moved on. The place goes nuts. And then the coach comes out. Here's the quote from the umpire to the coach. If a kid is that honest, I have to give it to him. That's what she said. Sports Illustrated, September 16th, 1993. And here we are 30 years later. <laughs> talking about an honest kid in T-ball. Because they're kind of unicorns these days, aren't they? God honors the honest. Nice guys may finish last sometimes, but honest people will ultimately finish first. They'll sleep better at night and please the world's best and only true boss. That's God himself. And it's he that we honor now as we gather around the Lord's table. Let's go ahead and uh, you should have received the communion elements when you came in. We will uh, take it in just a moment. Uh, as we gather around, we, take, we do this every week at New Vintage. The, the little bread represents Jesus' body. Cup represents his blood. It's a time for us to reflect. Um, and as we pray, just remember Jesus who calls us to be honest, the one who said who, he was faithful with little will be faithful with much. And so I'd encourage us as we pray to, and, and, and as we reflect to think about the little ways in which we can improve our integrity, 
little tiny ways. Uh, and be even more obedient to what Jesus has called us to do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, with bread and cup now, we honor you. And Father, we want to be people of integrity, and we trust that you're able to make us so. So now as we take the bread and the cup, we remember Jesus, the one who taught us, that whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And so, Father, we want to be trusted with much. And so, Father, make us honest, shape us into honest people so that we bring you glory every day in the workplace, in the classroom, at all points in between. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.